I'm going to read verses 9 through 21, and then we will focus on verse 9. We're still setting the, the stage for everything that follows. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. May your spirit take your word and illumine it and apply it to our hearts. Make disciples, Lord. Bring to faith. Grow in grace. Do your work. We can do nothing apart from you, Lord. So may your Spirit empower the preaching and the hearing of your Word. That Christ might be lifted high. And that you might draw all kinds of people to yourself from every tribe and tongue, and nation, and language, Lord. Help us to work, to focus on Your Word, knowing that You are at work in our hearts for Your glory and our good. So we pray for Your blessing, and we trust You for Your blessing. In the holy name of Jesus, Amen. We hear a lot of talk about love these days, don't we? And you always do. And some people like to just pick out one attribute of God. God is love. How about this? You hear this a lot lately. Love is love. Well, that's helpful, isn't it? The meaning of that is anything man calls love is good and should be celebrated. But it's a bit like saying a ball is a ball. It's just not very helpful as a definition. 
Listen, if you're older or maybe you're a fan of older music, you might remember a song by the Beatles called, All We Need Is Love. And that really, you just memorized the song pretty much, because that's about it. Go look at the lyrics. All we need is love 42 times becomes a song. Because we like the music. But either in, in current culture or in that song or in a lot of other places, we get no definition of love. Lost people want to create their own definition of everything, including love, based on what they think is right. And that's nothing new. Go read the book of Judges. There was no king in the land. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? That's a recurring theme. Even heard it as I read the text. We won't get there today, but do not be wise in your own eyes. But see, this, this mindset is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve were tempted to detach their reasoning from God and detach their thinking from His authority and decide for themselves what would be right based on what they would most enjoy and be blessed by. And we see where that led us. They relied on their own authority. They defined their own boundaries And they fell into rebellion against God and died as He had promised. Spiritually, immediately, eventually, physically. So today what I want us to do is begin to think about that word love and how do we define it? Can we define it? Is there an authoritative definition of it? And I want to put before you that there is. So our question today is, what is true love? No, I'm not thinking about Princess Bride when I say that, if you've seen that movie. True love. Anyway, what is true love? Is there a such thing as true love? Or is it just whatever man thinks about it? See, we're in a study in the book of Romans. Maybe this is the first time you've been here. So Paul is putting forth for the Roman church that he hopes to visit the gospel that he preaches. And he's shown us a few things. He's shown us that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That Jew and Gentile, which is the world, by the way, to the Jewish mind, have fallen short, cannot save themselves, need a Savior. None good, no, not one, was his conclusion. All under sin. All deserve wrath. The law should shut our mouths with our excuses and rationalizations. But he didn't leave us there. He showed us that the righteousness that we don't have has been manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has lived for us and died for us and been raised from the grave so that we are justified by faith in Christ and by faith alone. By trusting in Jesus, you can be forgiven for all of your sin and accepted as righteous in God's sight. Because Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, and He lived for our righteousness. He fulfilled fulfilled the law that we had broken. So that when you come to faith in Jesus, and you don't feel any of this, you're cleansed from sin and clothed in His righteousness and adopted into God's family. 
And the soul that he justifies, he sanctifies. In other words, he's making us more and more like what we already are before his judgment bar in Christ Jesus. He has empowered us with his spirit, given us his word, given us a new heart. We've died with Christ and been raised with him to newness of life. The reign of sin has been broken over us so that we live in his grace and in his power to therefore grow in putting sin to death. And we dwell in what we sung. We dwell in His unchanging love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's true of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus. And then in chapters 9 through 11, we see sovereign election and how God is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth through the Jewish unbelief, bringing the Gentiles to faith, and through the Gentiles' faith, eventually bringing the Jews to faith. And God's glorious majesty is put before us of Him. And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And now see, we've changed. Like if you go read the book of Ephesians, you'll see the first three chapters are gospel. And the last three chapters are, are how then should I live? Having come to faith in Christ, now how should that change my life? Well, Romans, the gospel is a little broader. The mercies that he talks about in verse 1 are chapters 1 through 11. And now we're getting that application. We're getting the therefores of the gospel. Having come to faith in Christ, what should my life look like? Well, we saw Jack out of the box that that, by the, because of the mercies of God, we should be living sacrifices. Wholly devoted to God, spending ourselves as a sacrifice to God. That's our reasonable response. And what that looks like, if you look at verse 2, is therefore the world is no longer shaping our thoughts and our desires and our intentions, but it's God's Word that shapes us now as a living sacrifice. So that's going to make us humble. It's going to make us serve the body. It's going to, He's gifted us to serve. We've seen that and we're coming now to love. My response to the gospel is to live a life of love, but love not as I think it should look, but love as God defines it. So today we're just looking at verse 9, and I titled it True Love, and it's a very simple main point. Love truly by hating all evil and holding fast to all good. You never thought there'd be a hating element to love, did you? Love truly by hating all evil and holding fast to all good. Well, let's start with the first part. Love truly by hating all that is evil. Point number one. And right out of the... You're going to see, we, we have words in this text that are screaming for definition. We have words in this text that, that cry out for an objective standard. And we'll talk about that later. These words need grounding. They can't just be floating around in the air like the, the cultural definition of love these days. We need foundation for these words. We need grounding for these words. So look back at verse 9 and you'll see I'll highlight just three words. Genuine, evil, and good. All of these words are in the context and reference to love. But genuine, evil, and good, let the question come to your mind, by what standard? How can I know when something is genuine? How can I know when it is evil? How can I know when it is good? Well, I, I know because I just feel like it is. 
No. No, no. So what, what, what is genuine love? See, all these words are talking about love. So what is genuine love? What is evil? What is good? Our culture. Why does our culture struggle to answer these questions? Because if you detach yourself from God who created you and who gives you an authoritative foundation for all truth, if you step out on your own, then it just becomes man's opinion, man's feelings. Right? So you're going to have a hard time giving any objective overarching definition for anything because you're living without reference to God. The culture really struggles to give authoritative definitions. You've seen this recently. When I ask you, what is a man? Or if I ask, what is a woman? It's just a few of the questions our culture cannot answer authoritatively. And you see people stumbling all over themselves, trying. Because we've turned from God as a culture. So there's no objective moral standard. It's all reduced to man's opinion. If we're going to define these words, we have to have what's an objective moral standard. A moral standard that is overarching, that is true no matter who you are or where you are or what you feel. In order to know something is genuine or evil or good, you have to have an objective standard that defines genuineness or evil or good. Because if I'm not attached to that overarching or objective standard, then it just becomes whatever I think is right is right for me and whatever Andy thinks is right is right for him. And, you know, oh, good, that's your truth. Well, you know what? That, there's a Greek word for that. That's hogwash. If it's true, it's true. And if it's not, it's not. And either I'm right or you're wrong or you're right and I'm wrong. But we can't both be right thinking different things. On the topic. In order to know something is genuine, evil, or good, we have to have a, an objective standard. Think about it this way. Think about money. Think about dollar bills. You have genuine dollar bills and you have counterfeit dollar bills. Who determines the characteristic of the genuine dollar bills? The government does, right? They didn't take a poll. We didn't get a vote on it. The government is the authority that decides what the money is going to be and look like. So the objective standard for what a dollar bill looks like is the proper authority, which is government. We don't leave it up to man man to decide, right? Well, I just think this is a dollar bill. It's something he drew in the basement. Well, you think all you want to. Right? But how do you know what's genuine and what's not? By becoming familiar with the genuine. Right? Year, and before you had cheap pens and all this kind of stuff, tellers used to have to handle the money and look at the money. They could feel fake paper. They could see fake ink 
They could, because they knew they were intimately involved with the genuine money so that the counterfeit would stick out to them as soon as they touched it or saw it. But we didn't just leave it up to people to write their, make their own money or decide whether or not their dollars are real. The same is true for morals, evil and good. We need an objective standard that sets the definition. Listen to me. If there is no God, there is no authoritative morals. Without God, you can't call something evil or good. As far as morals go. Or genuine. It's just man's opinion. Well, I'm using this word objective standard. Just what is objective truth versus subjective truth? Just real quickly. Subjective truth is the beliefs, opinions, or perspectives that are influenced by personal experiences, emotions, or individual interpretations. Subjective truth is what you think and decide on your own. Right? Whether or not it matches with objective reality. Objective truth are facts that exist independently of personal opinions or biases. A standard that is true no matter how man thinks or feels. And like I said, if there is no God, we don't have that kind of standard. None exists. Hitler wasn't wrong. There's no way to prove him wrong if there's not a God. You might think he was wrong. But is that convention? Most of Germany seemed to agree with him at that point. Thankfully, we don't live in that subjective world, even though we want to. And even though culturally today, since man has adopted this postmodern mindset and detached himself for their thinking from God, claiming to be wise, Romans, we've seen it earlier in chapter 1, to become fools. That's why you can't answer any questions authoritatively if you detach yourself from God and His objective standard, His truth. So I ask you a question. Do we have an objective standard for morality? Can we tell what's genuinely, genuinely moral and can we tell it from what is not genuine or what is counterfeit? The answer is yes, we do. God's existence just from the creation is so clear that people are without excuse for not believing in, in Him. I don't have to prove to you God exists. The creation does that for me, if you have eyes to see. God is the objective standard and His, His, He's revealed His standard. He didn't leave us to guess what is good and what is evil. What is moral and what is immoral? He's given us the answer in His Word, in His law. God is the one who created us. God is the one who's sustaining us. God is the one who is the sovereign Lord over the universe. And He sets the rules. And when you come to faith, you begin to see. Yeah. And I wouldn't want it any other way. His commandments are for my joy. I've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Sorry, I put another bug in your head. God defines true love. And it is God first and then neighbor. 
Remember, without him, there's no objective meaning, morality, or anything else. But his law is the objective standard for morality. So if you want to know if your love is genuine, don't look in your heart. Love is not primarily this undefinable feeling that we in the West want to make it. Like a hole in the ground, something you can fall into and don't even know how you got there. Here's an explanation. If you want to know if your love is genuine, compare it to God's law. Compare it to His Word. See how He defines love. Not everything that man defines as love is genuine. But what's the summary of His law? Now, we've broken it. We need a Savior. We know all that. But Jesus said, and and that was not first with Him, that the summary of the law is love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. See, His commandments define love. And genuine love looks like that. Love of God first. Then love of neighbor. So the first part of our definition we have in our text here, look back at our text. He says, let love be genuine. Let it be the true, genuine article. Let it not be hypocritical. Let it not be fake. Let it not be false. Don't just act like or speak like you're loving, but actually really love. How do we do that? Today we have two very broad categories of genuine love. Loving without hypocrisy. Look back at verse 9. First part, uh, the first part of really loving is hating. True love requires hate. And I'm not starting a cult or some fringe group here this morning, okay? We're going to define that. We're required to love our neighbor. But there's, there's, a, there's something we're to hate here. We cannot love God without hating. God doesn't love without hating. Do you know that? He hates all wickedness. So the first part of our love is hate. Look, look at it. Abhor what is evil. Let your, let your love be genuine. How do I do that? Well, first, you abhor evil. And we're going to define that. But Douglas Moo says this. He says, true love is not a directionless emotion or something that can only be felt but not expressed. Love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right as defined by God in His Word. So, genuine love will first hate. Look what it says. Look at the word in the ESV. Abhor. Now, when's the last time you used that word? It's not as common as it once was, right? But it's a strong word. It's not a light word. It's not a, uh, a surfacey word. It's not, this has some emotion in it. To, to abhor something is to detest it. To utterly, utterly hate it. To hate it exceedingly. To have this real hatred of something that would, that thing that you hate is repulsive to you. 
It would cause you to, to you look upon it and you want to turn. Go the other way. Like my wife with snakes. She abhors snakes. I thought about her yesterday. I was going out to go into my barn. And my dog was over to my right looking up in the tree. She looks up in the tree all the time. She likes to bark at the squirrels. So I went in the barn. I opened the door. And as soon as I stepped in the barn, I heard thump. And I looked behind me. And there's this snake coiled up behind me that jumped out of the tree. Now it was a garter snake. It wasn't harmless. Right? It was that long. To her, it would have been that long. But it was that long. And had it been her, it was at the door. Imagine that fit. She'd have tore the barn down going out the side of it rather than try to go out the door. I love you, Cindy. I know you're watching. But she hates snakes. And that kind of gives you a picture. We are to utterly hate something. What are we to utterly hate? One little word, evil. What is evil? Here's your definition. Anything that deviates from God's perfect and righteous nature, which is revealed in His Word. Evil is anything that deviates from God's perfect and righteous nature, revealed in His Word. Evil is moral corruption. is wickedness. It's what the Bible calls lawlessness. I mean, we have one little short three-letter word for it, don't we? Sin. In order to love genuinely, and remember the definition, to love God first and then neighbor, but including neighbor, the very first part of that is a hatred of sin in our text here today. Not just a slight displeasure, but a hatred of it. Think about the Ten Commandments, and we've said that love is the summary. But in order to be loving God and loving neighbor, because that comes into the picture, I have to be hating all false gods and all false religion and all idolatry. The gospel will not allow me to say, well, whether you're a Buddhist or, or uh, you know, following Muhammad or, or whatever your choice is, as long as you're sincere, yeah, it's okay. No, those are all paths to hell. Why would I love that? If that will lead to condemnation. So, first commandment, all false gods I must hate, utterly revolts. All improper worship, second commandment. I must despise, utterly. You see how serious this is? But, I mean, people, people thought, who thought they could approach God on their own terms in the Old Testament turned into vapor. I must hate all misuse of God's name. Not just be mildly displeased with it. Now listen, it don't mean I go around attacking people every time they're sinning in my presence. That, that would be not the right way to do it. But when somebody misuses the Lord's name, it should be a knot in your stomach. Why, when people get mad, why don't they say, oh, Buddha? No, they use the Lord Jesus Christ's name as it's flippant. But violating His name is how we live as well as how we speak. But it's serious. 
God says, I'm to hate it. All dishonoring of His day of worship. All dishonoring of parents is to be hated. All murder, sexual immorality, theft, lying, covetousness is to be hated. And I, to hate it, I must confess it and repent of it and help others do the same. I must show them the danger that is there. So if I hate it, I'm seeking to turn from it and lead others. If I hate it, I cannot be silent about it. Ephesians 5.11 Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but just keep your mouth shut. Is that what that says? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, do it lovingly. Don't do it like a self-righteous legalist. But we have to be willing to say that these things that are violations of God's commandments are authoritatively wrong and bring wrath to those who practice them. We can't stay silent. One of the ways we fail to hate evil is by staying silent about it. I want you to imagine you're on a road on a dark night and you come upon, uh, you know the road, and you come up to the bridge that you know is there and the bridge out sign that was there is down. You know, there's a detour if you know the truth. The bridge outside, the bridge is out and there's a sign that was there, but it is down. The storm has blown it down. So you, nobody's going to be able to see it coming down that road. And imagine you see that and go, I'm hungry, whatever. And you go on around the detour and go home and eat. You do nothing to warn people that are coming. You know that they're going to drive off into a chasm and probably be killed. But you say nothing about it. You do nothing about it. Is that love? No. One of our biggest failures as a church in the culture is we have become terribly silent as a church. Silent about the gospel. But also silent about... So you can go to a lot of... I'm going to put it in quotes. Churches that will never talk about sin to you. That will never warn about wrath. Joel Osteen will never tell you the bridge is out. And one of our biggest failures, and listen, we have to do it in a loving way. We have to love people. We have to have compassion with people. We want to see them set free. But we're afraid to say homosexuality is a sin. We're afraid to say adultery is a sin. We're afraid to say that there is one form of marriage and it's between a man and a woman who are devoted to one another and joined and made one flesh. And we have to get over that. We have to tell people to bridge us out. All sexual immorality. And see, here's another silly thing. And I'm going to have you here for three hours if I don't shut up. But people will say stupid things like, I've got to be careful here. Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. 
he did so. As soon as he spoke about marriage, and as soon as he mentions and speaks about sexual immorality, it's all of it. Jesus never said anything about pornography, really. That seventh commandment, Adultery is the figurehead for all sexual sins. When one thing is forbidden, all like sins are forbidden and the opposite duty is commanded. So His commandments are comprehensive and they cover all of our sin. And it's the same God in the Old Testament as the New and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have to lovingly speak out. Don't hear me. I don't want you to go beating people over the head. But we have to start speaking about sin and its consequences so that the gospel then is good news and we can share that with people. Listen, we don't love God if we won't abhor evil, and we don't abhor evil if we'll never say it's evil. So we need to hate all evil by personally repenting of it, seeking God's forgiveness, and then doing what we can to expose others to their need for repentance. Because hatred is more of an action word than a feeling word here. Look at Psalm 97.10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Why? Because if you start speaking out against evil, they're not going to like you. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. So the first part of genuine love is hating every form of evil. And we have a definition and a way to know what that is by his word, especially his law, his Ten Commandments. Number two, hold fast. Uh, genuine love is holding fast to all that is good. Love truly by holding fast to all that is good. So love, real love, holds fast to, clings to, hangs on to won't be separated from anything that aligns with God's perfect and righteous nature as revealed in His Word. We cling to uprightness if we know Him. Moral uprightness. The good that we're to cling to, again, is revealed in His law. To honor Him as the only God. To worship Him His way and honor His name and His day. And love neighbor, promoting His prosperity, supporting His marriage, honoring His property, speaking truth to Him, being happy for His prosperity and content in my own situation. Genuine love, true love, loves... Look at, look at it. Summary. Genuine love, true love, the love that God calls me to is a love that hates what God hates and loves what God loves. Hates what God hates and loves what God loves. You want to know what God hates, all you have to do is read His Word. There are things in here that are called sin clearly, called abomination. That's an old word. It means it's very, very repulsed by it. Love what God loves and hate what God hates. Revealed in His commandments. John said this. You got to, we have to get over the love and this undefinable feeling primarily. Look what, how John defines love for us. John, the apostle of love. He says, for this is the love of God. This is how we love God. That we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, they're our joy that we pursue them. We grieve when we break them if we're His children. 
Jesus said it this way, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. We cling. How do we hate? How do we abhor evil? We cling to God in his truth. How do we how do we love the good? We cling to God in his truth in Christ Jesus. So hold fast, have a close association, join yourself to, give yourself to, steadfastly to God, therefore steadfastly to good. What does a life look like that abhors evil and clings to good? We're going to begin to give some, you heard it as I read it, some of the details of that kind of life that not only Paul taught about, but Jesus taught about. So we'll come to that later. But we all know intuitively if, we, if God has brought us to the truth, we know intuitively that we've failed to do this perfectly. None of us has kept His law in thought, word, and deed. Certainly not as an unbeliever. But even as a believer. But we strive to as a believer. We press into it. We cling to it. So I, I just wanted to leave you with the embodiment of, and the proof of true love. How do I know that this standard you're putting before me is true? And how do I see it in action? <laughs> One name. Jesus. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of and proof of true love. In his life, he sought to honor the Father out of love for him by keeping the commandments with joy. He perfectly fulfilled all righteousness, perfectly loved neighbor by keeping God's commandment, and perfectly hated evil and spoke out against it. You can't read the Gospels and not see that. But Jesus in his life came to fulfill the law that we had broken. Because for us to be accepted by God, we have to have a perfect righteousness in thought, word, and deed. And we don't have that. So that's why he came and lived on this earth to fulfill the law. And then secondly, his death. If we're going to be accepted by God, we have to be forgiven. And so that's why Christ died. We need salvation because we fail to love God and man. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. And that includes you. You cannot save yourself. If you will be saved, you will be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope will be in Him. And that's why He came to live, yes, and then to die. Christ died. Scripture says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. Proving it all true. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But he died to pay the curse for our evil. He took our curse and he rose in order to clothe us in his righteousness, which is required to be right with God. You see that double imputation. My sin was imputed to him and he paid the penalty. And therefore his sin, his, not his sin, he didn't have any. His righteousness was imputed to me through faith. Not through my works, but through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever does the best he can, whosoever believes in him, believes into him, trusts in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Trust in Christ. And the resurrection is the ultimate proof. Not just that Jesus is who he said he was, but that this word is true and that these commandments are the standard. For life and love and righteousness. Christ, not just in His death and resurrection, His entire life. That's why I said embodiment. He was the embodiment of true love and He was the embodiment of proof. 
See, Christianity stands or falls not on how old you think the earth is. I think that's important. Right? Not on a lot of other things. Christianity stands or falls on whether or not Christ died and was buried and was raised from the grave. And His life from its very inception was miraculous. So if you have a problem with miracles, you're going to have a problem with Jesus. But I've said before, if you can get through the first three words in the Bible, you got it made. In the beginning, God. If there's a God, miracles are not only possible, they are probable. <clears throat> Jesus was born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her and produced this fruit in her. I can't go into it. But think about his miracles. He turned gallons of water into wine. Oh, come on, Jeff. It was grape juice. Nope, it was wine. You're just going to have to get over that. It didn't mean he encouraged people to abuse it. But the banquet master said it was the best wine he'd ever tasted. And he knew the difference between grape juice and wine. He turned water in and quit arguing over the silly details and look at the miracle. He turned water into wine. Try that. Look, look at me. Are you familiar with the story of the widow of Nain who had one son and was having a funeral for that son because he had died? And they'd gone all the way through the grieving process and they are on their way to the grave. And Jesus comes upon them that funeral procession, and he knows who she is. And he has compassion for her. And I want you to just think about this. He walked up to that coffin and touched it and told him to rise. And he sat up. I'm letting that sink in for a minute. Imagine being part of that process. You're, you've been to the funeral. You're part of the family. And you're walking down the road. And then all of a sudden, this guy you've never seen before tells you to stop. And comes up and touches that coffin and says, rise. And he rose. And was given back to his mother. That don't always happen. And God didn't promise to make that always happen. But I'm just saying that showed who Jesus is. How about this? You tried this lately? He walked on water. And he even allowed Peter to walk on water for a minute until Peter got his eyes off Jesus. But he walked on the water in the midst of a storm with the waves and the freak the disciples slap out. That's a southern boy talking. And it would have you too. You're in a storm. You're rowing. You're trying to get down the other side and you see this shadow Walking towards you. You know what they said? Ah, it's a ghost. But Jesus was walking on the water. He cast out demons with a word. He healed many, some from a distance. He raised Lazarus from the dead, who was four days dead and sealed in the tomb. And told him to roll the stone back. And said, if he hadn't named Lazarus, the whole graveyard would have emptied. But said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Poor Lazarus had to die twice. But he raised him from the dead. He healed paralytics. He healed people born blind. He stilled the storm. Remember the story? 
when he gets in the, when his disciples are freaking out about the storm. Have you ever been in a storm in the water? Pretty scary. And when he said, be still, the storm was calmed. He fed 5,000 people with a kid's lunch. Give that a shot. You could feed this room. And we'd all get a little nibble. And then lastly, after he died, he was raised the third day. Appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Irrefutable proof. Best proof of the resurrection of anything in ancient history. If you don't use a double standard when you're evaluating it, you will come to the conclusion. Many have come to the conclusion that the resurrection happened by trying to refute it. And in the process, we were exposed to the gospel and came to faith. See, true love walked this earth. True love died for us. True love rose again. True love rejected and exposed all evil. True love fulfilled and embraced and clung to all righteousness. And true love offers salvation to you. Do you have it? If you're trusting in Jesus, you have it. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you need it. He calls you to faith and then He calls you to walk in the same kind of love that He walked in. An evil-hating, neighbor-loving, God-honoring love. So quickly, application. Number one, love truly by hating and exposing what God calls evil. Gently, lovingly, like Christ. The The only people Christ really got aggressively in their face were the legalists. So don't do it as a Pharisee. Do it as our Savior did. Look to His Word, His commandments for your definitions. Know that there is a genuine faith and a not genuine faith. There is a genuine love and a not genuine love. There is a love that is embodied and proved by Christ that He calls us to. So love truly by hating and exposing evil. Number two, love truly by clinging to what is good, which is God through His Word. Clinging to. Not just dabbling in. Come on, we dabble, don't we? We play. We act like Jesus was... He's okay. He's okay when I have time for Him. I'll just go by what I think I know about him. I don't really need this book he gave me and called me to bury myself in so that I know him and know how to live for him. But if, see, if I really know him, I'm going to have a thirst for this anyway. So nobody's going to have to beat me over the head to do it. Do you have a thirst for his word? Are you being shaped by his word so that you are hating all evil and clinging to him through his word? Him, his nature, his truth, who he is. You have such a faith in Him that the trials of this life, though they confuse you, they will always lead you back to Him to find the answers. Lastly, love truly by repenting, trusting, and following Jesus. I added following after I sent that to them. Love truly by repenting, trusting, and following His Son, Jesus. God is love. Rightly understood. But it's a holy love. 
because he's a holy God. It's a righteous love because he's a righteous God. It's a just love because he's a just God. It's a merciful love and a gracious love as well. But it's a love that hates evil and loves good because that's his nature. He is and he defines true love. So true love for me and what he calls me to is to love what he loves and to hate what he hates and to be sure I'm getting that information from what he's revealed in his word. All of this is fulfilled for us by Jesus. Look to Jesus and really love. Look to Jesus and really live. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love you and grow in it. A a real love. A love that is shaped and defined by your word. A love that is repulsed by what repulses you. A love that hates what you hate. And a love that loves what you love. Being guided and directed by your commandments and your word. May we then be loving to our neighbor. Not go bash them over the head, but lovingly seek to show them why they need a Savior. And that that Savior is Jesus. And Lord, another level of of love that you said, a new commandment you were giving, you're amplifying it by your example, is that we as believers are to love one another the way you've loved us. So help us to love one another this way. To hate what is evil and to lovingly bring correction to one another when it's necessary. And to cling to what is good and help those of us, maybe who are others who are struggling, help them cling and cling with them through tears and prayer and aid. Deliver us from all worldly notions of what love is or is not and root us in the truth from your word embodied by Jesus of what truth really is. Help us, Lord. Forgive us for how we've fallen short. We trust that your throne is a throne of grace, so cleanse us from our sin and fill us with your Spirit to better walk out a life of love like you have loved us and like you have embodied, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for your word. Apply it to our hearts and lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. It is in Jesus' holy name that I pray.